I invite you to turn to the Word of God, to the prophecy of Zephaniah. You'll find that on page 1002. Zephaniah 2, 1002 in the Pew Bibles. And I'll read uh, the whole chapter this morning in your hearing. Zephaniah 2. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. For Gaza shall be deserted, and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to you, inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines, and I will destroy you until no inhabitant is left. And you, O sea coast, shall be pastures with meadows for shepherds and folds for flocks. The sea coast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze. And in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. This shall be their lot in return for their pride." because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword, and he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and he will make... Nineveh, a desolation, a dry waste like the desert. Herds shall lie down in her midst. All kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog, shall lodge in her capitals. A voice shall hoot in the window. Devastation will be on the threshold, for her cedar work will be laid bare. This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. That's the reading of the word of the living God. Zephaniah the prophet has been tasked with the very difficult task of 
proclaiming judgment against Judah and against the nations surrounding them. And he has done so with urgency, with poignancy, with pointedness, with clarity. He has pictured in chapter 1 that the judgment will be a decreation. Things will become unraveled as God unleashes his judgment against the whole earth. It's a return of the flood where he will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. Though it's even worse than the flood because even the fish of the sea shall be destroyed. And when God blessed his people in the past, he's now going to withdraw his blessing. His hand was outstretched to bring them out of Egypt into the promised land. Now he's going to stretch out his hand against them and judge them, and all because of their sins. They have sinned against the Lord. Well, that's what we looked at last Lord's Day. But what is it saying to us? And what does this chapter that we're looking at this morning say to us? It can be very difficult for us to understand the prophets and the prophecies of Scripture, both the prophecies of the Old Testament and the prophecy that we find in the book of Revelation. What is this about Philistines and Moab and the Ammonites and the Cushites and the Assyrians? How does that connect with us today? Do we need to read these prophecies in the light of headline news? Is that the only way that we can understand what God is saying to his church today? Or is he saying anything to us? Is he just speaking to the church in the Old Testament, to the people of Judah, particularly as we hear in this prophecy? Well, no. God has a word for his church today, for us here in 2024. And though he speaks about nations with which we are unfamiliar, the truths that he is proclaiming, and the judgment that he is promising, and the blessings that he is holding before his people are not just for back then and them. It is for us and now and in the days to come. So let's look at this chapter together, and I hope that it will help you not only understand this chapter, but also how to engage with biblical prophecy itself. So the first thing I want to point out to you is that uh, the prophet Zephaniah is addressing nations on the four points of the compass surrounding the nation of Judah. And so, first of all, we head west, where he talks about the judgment of God that is coming upon the Philistines. You will know that the Philistines were a thorn in the side of the Israelites for generations, particularly at the founding of the monarchy under the reign of Saul and David. Saul feared the Philistines. David defeated them. But they have been difficult to the people, always attacking them. And God is now coming against Egypt, or I mean against the Philistines, and telling them that they will be destroyed. He picks four of the principal cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and says that the nation will be deserted, become a desolation, be driven out, and be uprooted. God is going to unleash his judgment 
and there will be no inhabitant left in the nation of the Philistines. That's what he says in verse 5. And then we go from the west to the east. And to the east of Israel are the nations of Moab and the Ammonites. And if you know your biblical history, you'll know that these are the cousins of the Israelites because the Ammonites and the Moabites come from Lot, Abraham's nephew. And they have been a difficult nation as well for the people of God. They have taunted the people. They have reviled them. They have made boasts against their territory. These were people who have, throughout Israel's history, have been uh, reviling and ridiculing and scorning the people of God. And God says to them that he is going to destroy them. In fact, they are going to become, he says in verse 9, like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah. Which again is very interesting because you'll know that it was Lot, the father of these two nations, who had lived in Sodom for a time and who was carried out of Sodom by the angel of the Lord before he witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah at the hand of God's justice. He was spared the first time, but they, his descendants, will not be spared now. They will become like the proverbial Sodom and Gomorrah, destroyed, wasted by God's judgment. And then here God gives a reason. He doesn't give a reason when he promises judgment upon the Philistines, but he tells them why they are going to be destroyed here. He says that in verse 10, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. So they have been arrogant. They have thought too highly of themselves because they exalted themselves. God says, now I'm going to humble you. I'm going to bring judgment against you because in particular the way that you've treated my people You can see that in verse 8, how the Lord speaks of the Israelites as my people. Again, in verse 9, he speaks of the remnant of my people. And then in verse 10, they have taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. And so God is going to pay them back for their troubles. This is evidenced in a number of ways. You you might remember that in 1 Samuel 11, in the time of Saul, the people of Gibeah asked for a treaty with the Ammonites, and the Ammonites said, yes, there will be peace, but on this condition, that we will gouge out your right eye. And then later on, under the reign of David, David had sent an entourage to Hanun, the king of the Ammonites, because his father had died, and this entourage was to console him in the loss of his father. And they were treated badly. Half of their beards were shaved and their garments were cut so that their buttocks were showing. And then when God's people rebuilt Jerusalem under Ezra and Nehemiah, remember Tobiah the Ammonite and the numerous times that he taunted God's people. God says, because of their pride, I am going to punish them and they will become like Sodom and Gomorrah. 
as I live. He says it with an oath. This is inviolable. This will surely come to pass. And then we go south to the Cushites, verse 12. These are the people of the upper Nile, perhaps the South Sudanese people. And there the Lord says, you also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. It's a very terse prophecy, just a few words, but it is a powerful prophecy for all of its terseness. It's as short and as swift as the thrust of God's sword against the Cushites. God is going to destroy the Cushites. And then we head north, and he says he will stretch out his hand against the north. This is the language that he used in verse 4 of chapter 1. God will stretch out his hand against Judah. Well, he will also stretch out his hand against the north, and he will destroy Assyria. The capital city, Nineveh, will become a desolation. It will become a dry waste like the desert. And when the Greek military leader Xenophon in 404 B.C. traveled through that area, he said that he could find no residue of the city of Nineveh, that great and massive city with walls that were very wide upon which three chariots could ride side by side. He could find no trace of that city in the sifting sands. God brought destruction upon it. He says that it's going to become the haunt of wild beasts and the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in it. And it's going to be a thorough destruction. Notice in verse 14 how he talks about the capitals and then the window where a voice shall hoot and then the threshold from top to bottom. Assyria will be destroyed. This nation which lived in luxury, which had all kinds of cedar, while her cedar work will now be laid bare. He tells us the judgment, and then here again he tells us why. He didn't do that with the Philistines. He didn't do that with the Cushites. He does it with the Moabites and Ammonites, and he tells us why with the Assyrians. And again, it's because of human pride. This is the exultant city that lives securely, he says, that said in their heart, I am, and there is no one else. They had taken to themselves the attribute of God. God is the one who is, and besides him there is no other. They said, we are godlike. We are, and there is no one else. No one to compare with us. No one who is of any value. No one whom we should consider. We are ecstatic, secure, and we are self-sufficient. And the chapter ends with this alarming notice. What a desolation and Assyria has become. There's creation reverse. Man was supposed to rule over the animals and, and push back the animals and establish cities and gardens for the glory of God. Well, now this has been reversed. The people have been exiled, destroyed, removed. And the wild beasts now take over. So that everyone who passes by Assyria whistles and hisses and shakes his fist at the astonishing judgment that God has unleashed against them. 
So that's chapter 2. But there's something significant about the fact that the prophecy comes against the four points of the compass, west, east, south, and north. Because though the prophet Zephaniah is speaking about these particular nations to the nation of Judah for their blessing, the fact that it's the four points of the compass indicate to us that this is, that the prophet has a universalizing tendency, that it's not just these nations who are going to be destroyed for their pride and their sin, but it's all the nations of the world that are going to be destroyed because of their similar pride and their similar sins, so that these four nations, or five really because of the Moabites and the Ammonites, these five nations on the four points of the compass become a type, a picture of what will happen to all the nations of the world when God comes in judgment against them. Perhaps this will be helpful. You know, in the book of Revelation, it talks about the destruction of Babylon. And in the Revelation, the fall of Babylon is not just the fall of a particular city. It doesn't even have to be the fall of a particular city. But Babylon is a picture, a type of the city of man erected in arrogance and opposition to God who refuses to submit to them, to him, and goes their own way, living in luxury and in wickedness and oppression and in godlessness. Babylon is not the only city that will be destroyed. It's a picture of the city of man that will be wiped out on that great day when God comes in judgment. That's how we're to understand these four cities here, or these four nations in Zephaniah 2. It's not just about them. It's about all those who reject the authority of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And so what's the point? Well, it was, of course, spoken to the the nation of Judah through Zephaniah the prophet. But just as the four cities are representative, or the four nations, rather, are representative of all the nations of the world, so is Judah, the people of God, representative of all the people of God throughout world history. So that God is not just speaking here to Judah back then, but He's speaking to the church of God throughout all ages, the church to which we too, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, belong. See, there has always been only one church in the plans and purposes of God. The nation of Israel was the Old Testament church, and God carried that church throughout her history, preserving it, protecting it, in order that she would be a blessing to the nation. But in the fullness of time, when God sent forth His Son, who is the the seed of Abram, the one through whom blessing would come to the whole world, that church was added to by Gentiles. Paul talks in Romans about how the Gentiles are grafted into the church. But there's only been one church. 
The, the, the root of the church is, is Abram and the, the people of Israel and Judah in the Old Testament, into which Christians, Gentiles who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are added. And so Paul can say that those who believe in the Lord Jesus are the sons of Abraham, the children of Abram. We, we are of the people of God, just as much as the people here to whom Zephaniah is speaking are the people of God and the descendants of Abram. And so when God calls them my people, you're to see yourself as being addressed too. God is speaking not just to them back then. He's speaking to us right now because we are together with Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus Christ. We are the one church of the living God. And so what is God saying to us? He's speaking to them and using nations that uh, the the Israelites understood and knew, and he's speaking about their sins that the Israelites had experienced, but he's speaking to us as well because we belong to this one people of God. So what's he saying to us? Well, I want to point out four things. First of all, there's this call to repentance, and it goes somewhat like this, as one of the commentators said. If God hammered the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Cushites, and the Assyrians, what makes you think he won't hammer you? If God is going to bring judgment against these nations, why would he not bring judgment against you? You see, it's always been tempting for the church to look around them at the nations and say, yes, absolutely, they deserve to be under the wrath of God because of their disobedience. But not us, because we are God's chosen people. We belong to him in a special way. He has set his favor upon us in a way that he hasn't set his favor upon anyone else. And Zephaniah is saying not only to them, but he's saying to us, listen. Seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness. Because if God brought judgment on them for those sins, he will bring judgment upon us if those same sins are found within us. So that any time we see the wrath of God unleashed against others, it's always a call to us to be careful and to be sure that we are right with God. In fact, this is the very thing our Lord Jesus said in Luke 13. Listen to this. He's talking about what happened, uh, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Is that why they got judged, because they were worse than others? Is that why the Philistines and the Moabites and the Ammonites, Cushites, is, are they judged because they were worse than others? Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so that's the message to them and to us. Unless we likewise, or unless we repent, we will likewise perish. 
We need to humble ourselves. We need to recognize that there's more than enough in us for God to be displeased with us, and that if God were to deal with us according to our sins, we could not stand before him. And we need to know that not just intellectually, but it needs to be a weight upon us. We need to feel the seriousness of our sins, not brush it off, not rationalize it, not think it's no big deal. God's happy to forgive. No, we need to feel the weight. We need to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God. And then we need to trust in our Lord Jesus Christ as the only one who can spare us from God's judgment because he took that judgment upon himself. Remember how last week we saw that judgment was a decreation, a reflooding, and an ungracing. And you think about our Lord Jesus on the cross. What was it but the unraveling of creation? Remember how the sun refused to shine. That great light that God had placed in the heavens, it refused to shine when our Lord Jesus was on the cross. He experienced decreation, utter darkness. And he experienced the floods. He says, quoting from Psalm 69, that the, the waters had come up to his neck. He was drowning under the flood of God's wrath. And he had experienced God withhold the graces that he had previously experienced. Remember at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember the transfiguration, this is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. But on the cross, in that great moment of judgment, heaven was silent. What Christ had experienced in the past, he didn't experience then. Now, Christ experienced the judgment of God. All the things that are said, for instance, against the nation of the Philistines, the desertion, the desolation, the driven out at noon, the being uprooted, that was the experience of our Lord Jesus on the cross. He took wrath. And he took wrath so that you wouldn't have to take it yourself. Sin must be punished, and you either take the punishment for it or you find someone else. And God is saying, here I have given my son, and all the judgment that sin deserves has been unleashed on him. And if you hide yourself beneath the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be protected, you will be spared, you'll be safe, you'll be secure. That's the first thing. It's a call to repentance. Secondly, this prophecy tells us that the Lord loves his people. He's mindful of them. That's what it says in verse 7. For the Lord their God will be mindful of them and restore their fortunes. The word is actually the Lord their God will visit them. It's it's the same language that's used in, in Exodus where God tells Moses that he's seen the desolation of his people and he has come down to visit them, to bless them. The Lord loves his people. Even his people when they're weak and sinful and wander from him, he loves them so dearly. That's why 
when Moab and the Ammonites, when they taunt and revile the people of God, when they ridicule and scorn them, God doesn't just sit by idly, but He's concerned and He acts and He defends His people. He protects them and He punishes those who harass them. This is such a wonderful thing to know because we live in a world that is increasingly hostile to the church. Laws are promoted that would severely curtail our ability to be all that we should be as the people of God. We're reviled, we're ridiculed, we're scorned. But God is not deaf to that. It's not that He doesn't hear. He does hear. In fact, even our Lord Jesus Christ experienced the taunting, the ridicule, the scorn of people when He was on the cross. He fully understands our situation. Sometimes we think when people are against us, when they say unkind things, when they are ridiculing us and bullying us, we think that no one understands, that no one cares. No, not not true at all. The Lord understands. The Lord Jesus has experienced it, and the Lord Jesus cares. He loves His people, and He will protect them from their enemies. That's The second thing, the Lord loves His people. Thirdly, the Lord will bless His people. You might have noticed as we read through the chapter that a couple of times it talks about the remnant. For instance, in verse 7, the seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. And then again in verse 9, the remnant of my people shall plunder them, and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. They're spoken, this remnant is is spoken again in in verse 3, verse 12 of chapter 12. There is within the the midst of the nation, within the nation, there are a small group of people who are uh, humble and lowly, who who really belong to the Lord. Not not all Israel, Paul says uh, in Romans. Not all Israel is of all, is Israel. So that not all who identify as the people of God actually belong to the people of God. Remember during the time of Elijah, the Lord says that he had reserved for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal, so that there is within the church, there has always been within the church, a remnant of people who truly belong to the Lord and who are devoted to serving and honoring Him and living their lives for His glory. There are some in the church that have the name of church, that belong in the membership of God's people, but will experience judgment. But the remnant, those who seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness, walk in the ways of the Lord, they will be blessed. Now, what's the blessing that they'll receive? Well, notice verse 7. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah, on which they shall graze, and in the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening. So that the, the remnant of God's people are pictured as living in the land of the Philistines, because the Philistines had been utterly destroyed by the Lord. Their land has become a desolation, but then it has been revived and restored. It has become lush and fruitful, and God's people will dwell there. You can see that again in verse 9. Uh, Moab and the Ammonites, they will be destroyed, and then the remnant of my people shall plunder them, 
and the survivors of my nation shall possess them. That is, as God had promised Abram, one day the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will inherit the world. We will live in this world free from all the enemies of the people of God, a world purified by the judgment flames of God's uh, wrath. And this will be the possession. This, this world is our inheritance. It, it's pictured uh, in Zephaniah as uh, the, the, the remnant of Judah possessing a, a, a possession, possessing a small part of the Middle East. That's a picture that God has promised us the, the world for our inheritance. We will live on this earth, and the wealth of the nations will become ours because the Lord loves his people and he promises to bless them. So that's the third thing. The first thing, it's a call to judgment. They're called to repentance because of judgment. Secondly, it's uh, uh, that God loves his people, protects and cares for them. Thirdly, that God will uh, bless his people with prosperity and good. And then the final promise of this chapter is the promise of universal worship. I want to draw your attention to verse 11. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down each in its place all the lands of the nations. So you look at the Old Testament, and you see that there's one nation out of all the nations worshiping God. God says there's a day coming when all the nations will worship the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. And it's interesting how God will do it. Verse 11, God will be terrifying. He'll be awesome against them. He'll famish all the gods of the earth. So what's the picture there? What's this picture of God's starving, of becoming lean, of losing body fat? Well, the reason these gods are famishing is because God has made the land of the Ammonites and the Moabites a land possessed by nettles and salt pits and a waste forever. Nothing will grow in the land of Moab and Ammon. And because nothing will grow there, they have nothing to give to their gods. Remember, that's how, that's how it worked. You wanted your god, lowercase g-o-d, to do something for you, you would give them a gift. You would give them some food or some wine. But what happens if the land doesn't produce food or wine? You've got nothing to give to these gods, and they will starve. And this is what God is saying, that God is going to display his glory, and he's going to show the weakness and the powerlessness of the gods so that people are going to instead worship him and give him glory and bow down before him. That was one of the great hopes of, of the Old Testament prophets. We, we sang it in Psalm 67 this morning. Let all the nations praise you, O God. Let all the nations be glad and sing for joy. And this is, this is the picture that the prophets use. Sometimes the prophets say that all the nations are going to come streaming into Jerusalem to worship God there. And sometimes the prophets say, like it says here, that the nations are going to worship God 
each in their own place, wherever they are, so that uh, in Assyria and in Egypt, these pagan places, God is going to do a great work and revive and, and restore the worship of God in these places, so that this prophecy is fulfilled in part in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ came some 2,000 years ago, he sent his apostles to the nations to go proclaiming the praises of our God. And many throughout the history of the church have seen the, the weakness, the powerlessness of the gods and have bowed down before the Lord, the God of Israel, and worshiped him. And this is going to continue. What we're doing today is a fulfillment of what Zephaniah is prophesying. The nations bowing before the Lord, each in its place, giving glory and honor to him through Jesus Christ, his son. And this will continue throughout this period. And then when the great final day of the Lord comes, all people, all people in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow down and worship Christ to the glory of the Father. We do it with joy and gladness. There's nothing we'd rather do than lift up our hearts and voices in the praise of our Lord Jesus. But one day, everyone who has not bent the knee with gladness will be compelled to bend the knee and worship Christ to the glory of of the Father. So there's a word for us, a call to repentance, a reassurance of the love of God for His church, a promise of blessing that we shall inherit the nations, we shall plunder the enemies of God and possess the world. And the Lord has promised the universal worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be praised throughout the ends of the earth because he is worthy. And again, all these promises are meant for the remnant of the people of God, those who have sought the Lord, who do his commands, who seek righteousness, who seek humility, and who have hidden themselves beneath the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ the one who has taken God's wrath in our place. Let us pray together. Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank you for the many ways in which you speak to us in your word, the different ways that you do so, through story, through prophecy, through poetry. And we pray that you would help us to understand your word and what it means for our lives so that we would bow before you in joyful worship, delighted that you are our God and our Savior, knowing that there is no blessing without you. We pray that we would leave uh, confident in your goodness and in your tender care for your people, that uh, we are the apple of your eye, that you've promised great things for us, and that in your grace and fulfillment to your promises, you have drawn us so that we have bowed down before the awesome God. We pray that you'd bless us and answer us in your rich grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.